for so many first time founders, I'm a big fan of stair stepping in entrepreneurship. One of my favorite tweets that I've, I've ever written just personally is, um, you know, start with an agency, get to cash flow positive, and then bootstrap an asset, whether that's the SaaS company or e-commerce business, sell that asset, become, you know, financially secure, and then do whatever you want. But along the way, you kind of prepare yourself for the next stage of business. In this episode, I talked to Andrew Gazdecki from Microacquire, and he started a couple other businesses. He sold two of them, and in that process, he decided there needed to be a better way to buy and sell businesses. So that's where Microacquire came from. They're a marketplace, originally focused specifically on SaaS businesses, but they've brought into all of software. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to him, he doesn't run a traditional newsletter or something like that, but he uses audience really well to grow Microacquire. He uses personal brand, connections with others, partnerships, a bunch of fun things. So we get into how he grew his Twitter audience from 30,000 followers like just a couple months ago to over 70,000 now. His approach to Twitter, it's some of the arguments or beefs that he started with like TechCrunch and others, um, where he thinks those lines are. Uh, we also get into how he uses Cameo. So he has these great ads or announcing partnerships and others from uh, Russ Hanneman on Silicon Valley you know, talking about this and they're really entertaining. So there's a lot of fun things in, in this episode and I think you're going to like it. I'll get out of the way and we'll dive in. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Always a pleasure to be chatting with you. Yeah. So I feel like we'll just dive in. Um, there are a lot of companies uh, in the like brokerage, help me sell your business kind of uh, space. You know, I think of like FE International, Empire Flippers, Flippa, all of these. Um, so one, you're going into a really crowded market with micro acquired. And then two, you're coming at it like, it feels like you're a force of nature. Sam Parr and I, and we're, we're actually talking about this of like where some people start a project and it's like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And then other people do like effectively the same thing. I mean, it's different in a lot of ways, right? But the same category and come in and just completely dominate and grow so fast. And it feels like a fundamentally different thing. What's your take on that of coming into a crowded space and then the amount of momentum that you've come in with? Yeah, um, we'll definitely have a lot of respect for all those companies that you mentioned and uh, appreciate the compliment. I guess I just think, you know, the market that is specifically acquisitions just hasn't seen a lot of innovation in a decade. You know, mm -hmm. the two of the businesses you mentioned are service businesses, flip up being a marketplace. And I looked at that and I just thought there's an angle here that really sellers could benefit more than the buyers. And I felt buyers were benefiting. And so I took a left while everyone was going right. And then coming in from an entrepreneur's view instead of a uh, buyer's view or an investment banker's view or an M&A advisor view. This was, you know, me saying, okay, I've gone through two acquisitions. I think I have a few unique insights into, you know, what, what would it take to make me comfortable putting my business, you know, generating millions of dollars onto a marketplace and then how, like what information and educational pieces would I need to feel comfortable to facilitate an acquisition? And so I, I just kind of built what I felt acquisition should be. 
we still have like a long way to go. Like we're still like just getting, yeah. like we've done a really good job connecting buyers and sellers and all the acquisitions are facilitated off platform. Uh, we've been uh, working on a lot of tooling to really add value to the acquisition, if that makes sense. So we're looking to innovate on things like due diligence or even simple items like writing a letter of intent or streamlining escrow because everyone complains about escrow.com. So yeah, I mean, sometimes that just happens in markets, like a new entrant comes in with a different you know, angle towards the problem and different viewpoint. Um, and I think my unique uh, insight there was just, I had been on just the side of the table that maybe the other uh, companies had not but it's also a, a, a giant market. So I think a rising boat lifts all tides. So, you know, we're here to micro require. I just made micro require to help entrepreneurs get acquired and, and succeed. And so um, I think also as, you know, micro require picks steam, it helps everyone else in the market as well. So, but uh, yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know. I think if I, if I, this will sound cheesy, but you know, I, I, I'd like to say I built MicroQuire with love. Like uh-huh. I launched it in the middle of the pandemic. I didn't have a business model. I had no idea how I was going to make money. I just knew I wanted to work with entrepreneurs and startups. And the the rest is kind of history. You know, along the way, talking to customers, getting feedback from them. Pretty much everything we do is basically feedback from customers i'm not steve jobs or anything like that so i can't read people's minds so i ask what (laughs) what ideas you have um but yeah it's been it's been a fun journey so far um micro is about to turn two which is pretty wild that first version that you launched what what did that look like what what was the very early stages of it the first version was it was just a, a simple marketplace with a couple key changes that I hadn't seen in the market. One was privacy and anonymity, and then no fees or commissions for founders. So it was the first marketplace where you could meet buyers and sell your business without paying a 15% commission like you typically would with a broker or something like that. Um, So I think that was kind of a change. And our business model today is we charge buyers for access to the platform to connect with sellers and you know have negotiations that lead towards negotiations but yeah the first version um required uh, a lot of vetting of the buyers so every buyer needed like a linkedin profile some people have complained about that but i personally would never sell my business to someone without a linkedin profile i need to know where, where you worked like you know do you have anyone that's vouched for you I'm not just like john 99245 you know, like I need to know who you are and we're going to add other ways of verification, but I think that was a big one. And then also real-time metrics integration. So when we launched, you could connect like Stripe and ChartMobile and ProfitWell and Metrics to get like a real, like a nice pretty graph of like the revenue to help with due diligence. And then also founders and everything was private. So you didn't know what the business was. And as a founder, you had complete control over the process. So when you work with a broker, sometimes it could be kind of showing your business to a lot of people. Right. And you may not know who those people are. They could even be competitive to your business. And so I think what MicroQuire did that kind of, and I'm just guessing here because I haven't really like 
taking a step back and been like, what did we do right? Yeah. You know, I'm usually thinking about what, what can we be doing better? We really put the founder in control. You know, they were the ones able to choose which buyers to speak to. They were the ones able to share which information they wanted to and which information they did not want to share. And again, it was completely free. So it was very low friction to get onto the platform. And then I think just the the high the caliber of buyers and the caliber of listings. So we vet every listing. We vet every buyer now that registers as a, a might require premium buyer. That's where you can contact sellers. So I think it was just kind of like a you know, going from let's just call it like a car dealership to like a Ferrari shop. That makes sense. Where all the cars are vetted, and if you want to know who the owner is, you have to pay for that access. But it was a very specific towards startups, specifically SaaS. So I think that's another thing that I'm thinking of now is we um we went very narrow at the beginning, <laughs> very narrow. So we were very specific on um specifically uh, bootstrap SaaS companies. Yeah, I think the approach in different marketplaces is always interesting. When you know a marketplace to sell businesses has like is the generic category, but then the twist on it of the seller not paying anything and it being the buyer who pays, you know, a subscription for access. Well, I think that that makes for an interesting twist because then you're going to have this much higher pipeline of, you know, high quality businesses to look at. And so if the seller is paying for that, that makes sense. It reminds me of like Bumble as a dating app being like, yep, still within the category of dating apps, but women have to send the first message. You know, and, and like that little bit of a twist makes it the marketplace feel uh, very different and changes the dynamics of it. Yeah, I was going to say some, someone called Microfire Shark Tank, and like if Shark Tank and Tinder had a kid. Um, I yeah, know that was kind of an interesting analogy. But yeah, I, I'd say the the key, the unique insights I had was, again, like from my perspective, if I'm going to list a business, I need to know who's seeing my information. I want to be in control of, you know, what information is being disclosed or being displayed publicly. And I don't want to commit until I really know uh, the quality of the buyers. And so that I think was very appealing to just being an entrepreneur. I think I, you know, understood the needs of other entrepreneurs and just kind of got it right. But I'm not going to lie. When When I first launched it, I have this. I keep a journal that I update every month. It's not like a weird, you know, hey, dear diary thing. It's um, I I do like what's going really well. What are some things I'm worried about? And then things I'm grateful for just to, you know, kind of keep a story log of my life. And before I launched Mike Require, I actually, because this idea had been attempted before, like a real startup acquisition marketplace. I think some of the other marketplaces are more geared towards, you know, content sites and domains and yeah. affiliate websites, but not real startups like SaaS companies, e-commerce companies, crypto companies. We've moved into a number of different categories, but I wrote in my journal, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work, but at least it looks good because I, I just thought it needed to exist so bad for entrepreneurs that uh, we put a lot of thought into user experience and design, so it felt modern. You know, mm-hmm. when you're working with startup founders, you kind of, you know, you want to really build trust. Like, yeah, if you're going to sell your business with us, your startup, you know, we also, we know how to build startups as well um, and design them well and make them feel like something like 
this this feels legitimate. And I think that's uh, what I would call, um, you know, closing the credibility gap, you know, really that first impression is so important. So really kind of overdid the initial MVP, if you will. Yeah, I think that design is one of those things where you can go a long ways. And it's probably the first thing that people cut when it comes to an MVP. And that's just, I'm like, nope, that's not an MVP. You have to cut features. You can't cut like the quality of, of the design. And if I have a limited budget, I'm for sure spending half of it, if not more on design. So I think you made the right move there. Yeah, I think I think today, I don't know if we're going to go off topic here, but I think a lot of startups today can legitimately have user experience and design as their competitive advantage. Just saving people mm-hmm. a couple of clicks, making things easier to use, having a product where you don't have 50 tutorial videos you got to watch or a course you have to take. That's a huge advantage. Uh, and there's a lot of products that are very clunky and kind of feel like a car with, you know, like a jet ski engine added in, like just kind of like a Jenga thing. Yeah. You know, there's just so much technical debt to the product. Uh, I think though there's some products out there that I think could be, you know, rethought in terms of like the experience and the design they're delivering to the customers. Um, but that's, that's probably a whole nother topic. Yeah, yeah, but we agree. And anyone who's listened to this show knows that I care deeply about design. Uh, one thing that I want to ask about and, and spend a lot of time on is content strategy. Um, if I go to your website and go to the about page, uh, it just lists your title or like your your job description, your role as marketing. And so I'm imagining that's where you spend the majority of your time. And from the outside, it looks like content marketing is either a very large or the largest portion of where you spend your time and, and how you're looking to grow microacquire. Can you talk about how you think about content marketing and the growth of the business? Yeah, I think that was twofolded. So number one, the first thing that happened to me when business apps was acquired, I had like five founder friends reach out and they said, how did you sell your business? How does this work? What, you know, mm-hmm. so as entrepreneurs, we're not trained to sell businesses. We're not educated on what is due diligence? What are the legal steps of an acquisition? So I felt it was a two-folded problem with a benefit. And when I say two-folded, not really a problem, but point number one, yeah, it's a phenomenal growth channel for us. We think heavily in terms of, you know, what is the content that entrepreneurs will need when they're going through an acquisition? Because the more we can educate them on acquisitions, uh, the more we'll be able to facilitate. And I think that's been crucial. But then two, there was just no content in the market. They're like there's books on fundraising, there's books on marketing, there's books on design, there's books on, there's a couple of books on exits, but there just is such a disproportional amount of content available for everything but a startup being acquired that we felt you know, there's an opportunity here to kind of be almost, uh, I don't want to say thought leader, but, yeah. you know, kind of write the the book, if you will, on, you know, this is, but also important to note is we write content for the seller, not for the buyer. Uh, we kind of think, you know, the buyers are set, you know, the buyers that we work with are, you know, private equity firms, corporate debt teams other startups, people that generally are sophisticated with, and also a lot of first-time buyers, 
but so the content still applies, but it gets you in the head of the entrepreneur, but we wanted to really empower the founder. So you'll notice every piece of content is angled towards the seller, not the buyer, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I felt that was critical and just something cool to do for other founders. Not like, hey, this is an article on how to get like the cheapest SaaS acquisition possible. Uh, so we read articles on how to maximize your startup's exit as an example. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that perspective is in your like your founding story for the company. But then it's interesting that right, it makes sense that it carries through all of your content marketing as well. Because in the same way that you have to know who your customer is, which in a marketplace, you have a lot of different customers or you, you know, you have both sides of it. But that's that's something. Yeah, you're on to something. So that's something that we determined uh, very, very early. So when we raised our, our seed round, I hired my former VP of product, VP of engineering, mm -hmm. my former CFO, and my former head of marketing, who's now gone because he went, he was, he, he, was, he was like one foot in, he started this uh, agency called Brand Arrow. So if anyone needs help with uh, Facebook ads, or just any sort of SaaS marketing, shout out to him, Brown Air. I told him like, hey, you gotta, I'm a big fan. I need like a micro mafia at one point. So I yeah, uh, I told him to, to dive in on that, but uh, we did an offsite and we defined our culture, you know, our values, but really specifically, like you said, who was our customer? Cause it could be so many people. It could be, okay, buyers but there's so many different types of buyers, you know, which ones are we gonna to cater towards? Mm -hmm. And then there's sellers, you know, there's so many different types of sellers. There's people looking to sell content sites, again, domains, Amazon FBA businesses, SaaS founders. And so we really narrowed in, got super specific with our buyer and that really guides a lot of the decisions that we make all the way from the content to the product. And I think that's, really crucial in the early days because you can always expand outwards there's a theory i don't know if you've heard of this but the bowling ball theory you've probably gone through this with your business where you know you start with one sort of audience and then or one customer segment and there's just like these natural sort of like you know other segments that target for us yeah. it was like e-commerce and then we've been seeing a lot of just miscellaneous you know profitable software companies so now we're a little bit more broad. So when I describe micro-acquire to people, I say it's a marketplace to sell profitable software businesses, not just SaaS anymore. But mm -hmm. yeah, we started really specific with SaaS founders being our initial customer. Yeah, I, like narrowing in on that is always a good thing. Okay, so content strategy, I'm seeing you do a lot of different things. One, I, let's just take Twitter as a, a starting point. So I was looking back in August, you had 30,000 followers on Twitter. You have 73,000 followers today. You're tweeting five to ten times a day, often. Like, you yeah, a lot, of, a lot of posts going out. It seems like they're resonating, and obviously from the growth and all of that, you have a lot of these single post or like single sentence. You know, here's an idea, latch onto it, like positioning type things. Like one, one example is uh, instead of thinking of a hundred plus startup ideas, pick a customer you'd love to serve and solve their problems. That gets a thousand likes, 150 retweets or more. I want to know. Uh, two things. One, tell me about your Twitter strategy of how it, it fits into the broader business and, and what you're trying to do there. Uh, and then two, we'll just get into what's working and what's not working. Yeah, definitely. So Twitter strategy, there is absolutely none um, <laughs> aside from having fun. And I'm, I'm a yeah. firm believer of this. 
I think when people try to have a social media strategy where their goal is to grow followers and you start doing stuff like looking at other people's tweets and then you take a tweet and this how I see this all the time with some content I put out like oh that looks very familiar but I, I don't I don't you know I don't care yeah um but they're trying to grow their audience and they're not being authentic uh to who they are and they're trying to be you know they're trying to I guess what I'm trying to say is find a way to utilize you know social platforms in a way that you enjoy so one thing to notice if you look at all my tweets they're all from my iPhone like they're not from my web app they're not from a scheduled Twitter thing I just like that tweet I remember writing that tweet I was like in my kitchen I was just like da, 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 da. Um, you'll also see a tweet right before this podcast. That's just me. I was waiting for you to come on this podcast. I was like, so I think my point being, and I think this goes even broader is just, you know, if you want to be great at anything, and I'm I'm not saying in any way, shape or form, I'm great at Twitter, but you, you just have to enjoy it. And then if you enjoy it, you're consistent at it. And then I do have a few rules though. Um, I don't usually comment on people's because like, you know, once you start getting to a certain point on Twitter, people, you can just post like entrepreneurship is awesome. And then people have like a hundred questions and I just don't have the bandwidth to answer all those questions. So I usually will, I'm watching those questions and I'll usually, if some, if something's interesting, I'll use that as a new tweet. And then you get tweeted at a lot like, hey, follow me. Like, hey, we'd be on my podcast. So I kind of have a rule of like, stay in my lane, if that makes sense. Yep. I've done a little bit of like beef marketing and stuff like that. You know, I'm, I'm sure you saw me like call out like TechCrunch and maybe like throw a couple of shots at like, just joking, like VC sort of like, you know, shit posting type stuff. Yeah. Um. And that works. It definitely works. And there's some strategy behind that. That's probably one part of my social media strategy that was um, strategic. It's effective, but it's not for the faint of heart. Because uh, okay. you do, you make people pick sides. So you're going to upset some people and you're going to make some people really cheer you on. And so I'm kind of done with that phase. Uh, that was fun. So if someone is in that phase or they're thinking about it, right? They uh, have a specific audience for their business or like a, a specific focus. They've chosen a niche and they have some strong opinions and they're not the kind of person who's like, you know, like, let's not cause any conflict. They're like, no, I'm actually, I'd be, I'd be willing to get into a little bit of conflict. What would you say? What's, what's your advice on going down that path of like, if you're thinking of, oh, there's a tech crunch in your space or someone else that you might want to pick a fight with. Uh, you just gotta really believe it. Like, and I think it has to be factual. Like what I said about TechCrunch as an example, just go on their website right now and see it and tell me if you can find an article about a bootstrap startup. Like that's all I said is like you guys are a publication that writes about just venture backed businesses. That's it. And you know, what kind of really struck a chord with me with that was uh, my prior company business apps. You know, we were in TechCrunch uh, all the time. Like they loved writing about, you know, real business building stories, partnerships, you know, version 2.0 launches, you know, international experience, like, you know, stories that inspire entrepreneurs and they move towards 
you know, this really venture backed sort of, you know, you're, you're either in it or you're not in it. And I just yeah. lightly called him out one time. And then some people were like, yeah. And then I was like, huh, maybe there's something here. And then I just, and this is how I always think of, or how I validate ideas as well as, um, so I have a publication now called uh, bootstrappers.com, which is just kind of like my, like what I wanted, like just, you know, I want inspiring stories. Like back in like 2010, you would read articles on TechCrunch about like two people, they just launched a product, no funding. I remember some of the writers I used to work with, they all left, they're all gone. It's like a new, it's a new company. It's It's been, you know, acquired by four different companies and, you know, some of the older writers are out, but uh, the older crew would kind of joke and say, Hey, VCs, like, I hope you thank me one day for writing about all the companies that you, that I discovered and then you funded later. Uh-huh. Uh, now the, the opposite is entirely true. And so I, I wanted to bring that style of, you know, journalism back where it's stories about companies making like, 200,000 a year or 500,000 or 2 million because you know when i read an article about a company raising 200 million and then 500 million like the next week uh it doesn't really inspire me too much and i think that's celebrated so much today in you know the startup community that i think it's a little dangerous i think as a young entrepreneur like if you think the path to being a successful founder is get into Y Combinator, raise a bunch of funding, get featured in, you know, these magazines because that's what happens when you get funding. Like that's literally like like the only way to get covered sometimes is funding announcements. And even then it's hard because there's so many. So I think that creates an environment where a lot of entrepreneurs are focused on raising capital rather than raising or generating revenue from customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just something that I lived through. Um, I had a really good mentor. We're told, are we going off topic too far? <laughs> well, I do want to take it back to like the idea of like picking a fight, but finish the thought with the mentor because everyone, everyone listening knows that ConvertKit is bootstrapped. I'm a huge fan of that. And the same things, the same reason that you're picking a fight with TechCruncher that you did, I would do the same because we experienced that of, you know, we could have more revenue, more customers, all of that than anyone else, but they're only going to write about the VC funded version. So, yeah. So, so long story short, business apps, uh, my company prior, um, bootstrap that business. And I just had a really good mentor, Christian Friedland, and he was always challenging me to think against the typical Silicon Valley path. And we were based in San Francisco for five years, eventually moved to San Diego and that's where we exited the business. But, uh, yeah. Now that like I'm on my third, I took a little hiatus and went into crypto land for a little bit. So got away from like SaaS and stuff like that. But now I'm back home and uh, yeah, just saw that and said, hey, and then actually TechCrunch did write a little bit about bootstrapping. And then I've also uh, seen a lot of other people start saying the same thing, like agreeing, which I think has been cool. Yeah, uh, which isn't like it's not a bad thing that TechCrunch or any publication like I don't want to just hone in on on TechCrunch because they've done so much for so many founders. But yeah, other people, I, I feel like the first shot was fired. Like, hey, you know, we missed the old version of you know maybe mix it up a little bit. 
uh, and they've taken some of that feedback and have actually written about some bootstrap companies. And then other people have kind of said the same thing, like, you know, the startup ecosystem is really turning into this, you know, fundraise craze news cycle. And, you know, there's 99% of other startups that aren't going down that path. Um, so that creates kind of like a movement. So that's like the benefit of, of beef marketing sometimes is you, again, make people pick sides. Some people agree with it. Some people don't. Yeah. So advice for anyone in terms of beef marketing. Uh, I, I, again, I, going back to my original point, it ha- you, you have to believe it. You have to believe what you're saying. It can't just be like, you know, one foot in. From my perspective, I think most of the major tech publications should write about, you know, businesses that are profitable and sustainable and ones that are raising a bunch of capital and going public. Like a good mix would be amazing because then that gives you a true picture of, you know, all the different styles of entrepreneurship, you know, the ones that are at the top of the top and the ones that are taking a more sustainable, practical approach, just giving a more, you know, realistic view into the world of entrepreneurship instead of just kind of, you know, putting this one style on a pedestal. Yeah, I mean, just get ready for, I mean, nothing like bad happened. Uh, So I would just say also with beef marketing, it doesn't have to be just um, an individual or, or an organization. Like good examples. So I've always had a, like kind of an, a branding an enemy uh, in all my businesses. For business apps, it was uh, large businesses. Like our main sales pitch was, you know, Starbucks down the street paid $2 million for their mobile app, blah, blah, blah. You know, would you like to create that same customer experience for your customers? And, you know, like David versus Goliath type story. Uh, you know, with MicroQuire, we're kind of fighting for the founders. Um, and then all the other stuff that I just talked about. Yeah. Uh, but Salesforce had uh, their their enemy was on premise software. They essentially invented SaaS. Do you know the company Drift? It's like yeah. a little chat yeah. thing. Yeah. They had a a big campaign of just no forms. Like no one wants to download an ebook anymore. Like forms go away, please. And I thought right. that was very clever. Uh, box.com had some beef with Microsoft, which was definitely fun to watch. I've, I've been around like long enough where I remember seeing in San Francisco, like the billboard of like box, just basically saying Microsoft sucks, you know, Uber and Lyft were thrown, had a food fight for a while. Um, that one probably went over, over the line maybe, but yeah, I'm just, my point is, is there's other examples. It could be for your business. It could be expensive to like i don't know like it could be it doesn't have to necessarily be like a organization or it definitely shouldn't be a person either like don't ever yeah like just straight up call that's just that's not cool like if you have a problem with a person call them and tell them your problems like that's (laughs) yeah you know like that's not i don't i don't support that at all i think that's ticky tacky and just a, a sign of just weak character if you're just literally, you know, trying to tear someone down for your business's benefit. One thing that's interesting, I think, is you probably watch some maybe beefs between individuals 
is just how many of them uh, maybe are planned or facilitated in some way. That is interesting. Like someone uh, messaged me today because uh, so like Nick Huber, who's uh, has a popular Twitter profile under Sweaty Startup. Um, hopefully we'll have him on the show soon. He was he posted something like controversial, which I know is one of his top of funnel tweets, right? To try to get as much attention. And so I purposely like aggressively disagreed with it, you know? And then we're just separately texting. I'm like, oh, thanks for the engagement, you know, right? Because we know that by dis like if he strongly takes one stance and I strongly take the other stance, then like one, no one will think we're actually mad at each other. But then two, like it'll get a lot more attention and engagement. So a lot of people are doing some version of that, or if you see it happening, usually between two individuals, often they're probably on really good terms behind the scenes. Yeah, I I, I did not know that. That's that's me staying in my lane. I yeah. I, I, I I missed it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's business entertainment. Yeah, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's a line to be drawn. You know, like if you do engage in stuff like that, number one. I think it's always great when like if it's real yeah. and then they like like, hey, we're cool now. Like, you know, we did this in pub and now like, OK, we're on. Like close that loop. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool to see. Um, but yeah, public food fights, not my thing. Um, I don't have the appetite for that or any advice. But but I will say I will say Nick has come in hard on some some of the stuff I've said. Like that's his whole angle. <laughs> yeah, the the one thing I'll say about that, though, that style, like shit posting, you know, like some people have like VC funds on just based on like shit posting and stuff like that. Right. What I've noticed, because and this this actually this is probably a, a good tidbit for, you know, if you're considering uh, beef marketing and what happens is you draw in a type of crowd that likes that negativity. And it and that can drain on you. And so if you just shit post all the time, like a large amount of your followers are just going to be shit posters and they're going to be, then all your comments are like, you suck, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you go on Nick's feed, you can just kind of look, just look at his comments. He has like a million people just unfortunately insult. I kind of feel bad for him sometimes because I've also seen him comment how it affects him personally. I don't know him, so maybe he doesn't give a shit. But um, that's why, again, I say stay in my lane, just keep it positive. I, I, Microcar's entire marketing strategy is literally just inspire, support, encourage entrepreneurs with it. Mm -hmm. Not, I, I mean, not getting beefs with people and stuff like that. So, how do you like? There's the side that you're, you're taking of using your personal brand for marketing. You know, growing a Twitter audience, all of that. You're very off the cuff of like, you know, just firing off um, tweets or things that you, you think about. But at the same time, like you're a professional marketer and you tend to, from what I know about you and other places, like you're very methodical, you tend to track things really well. Do you track efforts that go into Twitter and like how that uh, translates into, you know, deals on micro acquire or new uh, buyers or sellers, you know, like listing, listing companies or any of that? So I'm a big believer in, so David Cancel from Drift said this really well, where um, I think I'm, I might've mentioned this to you the last time we talked, but um, he, he broke it down into like three phases where uh, we've gone through three phases of SaaS. Like the first phase was invention, where the first person to kind of build the tool won the market. And then 
the second phase was the first company to really figure out the best go-to-market strategy like LDV to CAC, you know, AES, SDR ratio, who could, who could land grab the market fast enough. And then right now he says, he calls what we're in today, the Procter and Gamble phase, which is your brand. So it's a most defensible part about uh, your business is your brand. Your technology can be copied. It's easier than ever to raise capital, to build a team, to do that. There's also other things like your culture and your team's talent and just, you know, again, your unique insights into the market. People can copy chapter one, but not chapter two and three and four that you have planned. Um, so I think a lot about that a lot in terms of just brand and market reputation. But so, no, we don't I don't measure it um, when a tweet goes viral, like the one you just mentioned. I don't look at the comments because when a tweet gets like a thousand likes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, like the questions and the people who like disagree with you and just, you know, you start to enter. It's like you're in a stadium of, you know, 200,000 people are reading this and then like 200 people have comments. Not everyone's going to be like, yeah, like half of them are going to be like negative stuff. So go bootstrappers or whatever else. Yeah. So I, I push, I push away all negative energy. So if, if it, if it's not positive, I'm over it. What, what you're describing is, is interesting of, of the stadium idea of, if you think about it, like maybe you're a media group of friends, you post something, the people who reply right away, you interact with them a bunch, like that's who's on the field or whatever. And then yeah. the next group is like the coaches, the diehard fans, whatever, like the re- the support staff, everyone else. Like those are your followers. And then you can tell every time that the tweet goes beyond that because you start like I had one on company culture that was like a thousand retweets and went really far. And you could just immediately tell when it had gone to like two levels beyond the people who follow me because it just it went totally off the rails. And you're right that. The only thing you can do is like mute your own thread and move on. Yeah, I just you, and you could tell because I usually will like everyone's tweets just because I uh-huh. respect everyone's opinions. Like bringing um uh Nick back up, he I remember I had a tweet just something about how entrepreneurs that have maybe struggled in their childhood uh, have an advantage. He came in with like a strong disagreement, and it kind of and but I respected it. But then I we we kind of close the loop with like, hey, like I think you're you're taking this out of context. So I'll respect everyone's opinion, but once it goes, you know, I'll like all of them. And then once it goes viral, that's when it's like all everything's just nuts. Like, yeah. you know, I can't. I, well, number one, I can't keep up with it. And then two, I've probably already have moved on to like three or four other tweets that you know I'm thinking of or something like that. Um, yeah, but I think I think that's another important side of uh, just social media in general is just understanding like everyone has a right to their opinions. So even if people do strongly like disagree, that's awesome. You know, everyone is entitled to their opinion. Everyone has you know a unique view of life and how things work, and I respect all those opinions. But I think one thing about social media that can get kind of crazy is when you're taken out of context. Um, right. I've had that happen a couple of times, like the one, one time with Nick, maybe, um, he took it as I think like people with really great families, you know, it, it, like divorced dads make less than married men. And I was like, Nick, no, this isn't about divorced 
families. It's just about like entrepreneurs struggling when they when they grow up. Like, okay, we're Joe. You're right. Uh, I, and then I had another one. This one, this is a crazy one. I had one. Uh, I tweeted out, hire people you'd be friends with. And that was uh, literally someone <laughs> literally took that as far as saying, nice job describing why tech is sexist and racist in five words right and i and i was like what and i was hanging out with my son so i didn't have like enough i didn't catch it in time and so i come back uh to my phone and i I had to delete the tweet and then i actually you know put more content like hey i meant that as like you know hire people you'd be friends with and you'd care for them personally and professionally not just hire a bunch of white people or something like that like what so sometimes you got to be careful when that kind of stuff goes down um and it's also just fascinating how people can again their their perspectives like their perspectives and their viewpoints you know you can say one thing and it means one thing to you and something completely different to someone else right yeah i remember a time that josh pigford uh from barometrics uh had a tweet about concerns in your in a resume when someone you know has had 10 roles in 10 years or kind of thing or like jumps between roles every 12 months and that I, i'm not even fully sure why but but that one like he got jumped on in a very similar way of people taking out of context and saying like this is what's wrong with technology and let's talk about that for a second so when you're when you're taken out of context just admit it. Just say, hey, that that this is not what I meant. Mm-hmm. And then I recommend just deleting the tweet and just clarifying. Just like, hey, I wrote a tweet. This this is what I actually did. I deleted the tweet. And then I said, hey, I had a tweet taken out of context. And it's obviously a little embarrassing, like, uh, you know. But it's the right thing to do is like, hey, like, that's not what I meant. So also admitting you know, that's not what you meant, but clarifying with people like that's not that that was not my intention of right. those five words in any way, shape, or form, even like uh that 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 experience was so far off, I still kind of scratch my head on it. But my point being is, you know, it, it you know, take one back. Like, you know, hey, l- listen, I, I said something, it was taken out of context. I apologize. Um, this is what I really meant for further clarification. And it'll just make your life a lot easier instead of trying to defend. Because another thing is if and this is also why I don't really comment too much on social media. Number one, it's just exhausting because you can have so many. Then you're like a full time like customer support person on Twitter. Again, you know, once you kind of engage with someone who vehemently disagrees with what you're saying or has taken you out of context, it's really hard to change their opinion, if not impossible. So even trying once you if you just try, you lose like you just you just start throwing food and stuff like that. Um, so that, that's just kind of some of the crazy stuff I've seen happen on on Twitter as of you know, gotten a little bit more active. Um, cause I, I wasn't active on Twitter. So all this is like new to me too. I'm still right. learning like, Oh shit posters. I didn't, I didn't know those existed <laughs> yes, or like, Oh wow. You, you can get really taken out of context and it can go viral and people can say some mean things. Um, so yeah, my, again, 
going back to just saying I stay in my lane and just talk about stuff that I like to talk about. I like it. Something else that you've done that I hadn't seen other people do before, but I get it as a strategy. Um, so separate from like just Twitter specific, but it's using Cameo and using spokespeople on Cameo um, for your business. So specifically, you got Chris uh, Diamantopoulos from Silicon Valley and all of that to do announcement videos for partnerships. And one, they're amazing. But like, where did that come from? And how'd that turn into something that like, and now if someone says like Trace Commas, like in relation <laughs> to MicroQuire, everyone's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you know. So for the longest time, um, it was just me running MicroQuire. I was a solo founder and on the team page, we just like, as I was working on the design with, I, I initially used an agency to help with um, the development and uh there was a team page and i was like uh just put richard Hendricks, gavin belson and jin yang from silicon valley and it just kind of was i just thought it was cool uh-huh. and uh some people like you know called it out and was like are these really your team members and i'm like yeah they were super hard to recruit so i'm i'm a huge fan of the show because it is shockingly accurate and just hilarious uh and then yeah so i i actually you know before like right when i launched microquire i went on cameo saw russ hanman chris um i can't pronounce his last name off the top of my head but uh you know he was available and he was like my favorite character and i was like yeah you want to talk about microquire and since then we built you know a pretty good relationship in terms of you know, just working with him. And he's a really great guy. Like he's a really, really, really nice person. But my point here is I'm always thinking about what's, I'm always learning and I'm always trying to think of what is changing in marketing today. For example, the marketing playbooks that worked five years ago don't work as effectively today because everyone adopts them and starts using them. And then it starts to feel like marketing. And the best marketing doesn't feel like marketing. It's entertaining or it captures your attention in a way where you go, whoa, I haven't seen that before. So I'm always trying to think of unique ways to capture or actually, I should say, earn audience attention rather than buy it or, you know, write some ebook and gate it and get your email and then send you 30 trip emails, um, which worked fantastically a decade ago which killed it a decade ago. But so that's kind of where the thought process. And then candidly, I would say I might laugh the hardest at those videos. So it's like my like guilty, like pleasure. Cause you know, they're not free. So like, you know, I, I, I probably am laughing the hardest. Like when those go out. I've laughed pretty hard at a lot of them, especially as like they end up in a series where they like build on each other and the, the, he uses jokes that he first coined and, you know, first video. And yeah, a little background on that too, is I didn't tell him to make up anything. Like he's made up like gas decky style, micro yep. gas, micro. Like I don't tell, I just basically, cause you're only able to write in like two sentences. Okay. And he, he's just a, a hilarious person. So any startup looking to, you know, announce something, I highly recommend checking him out. 
I guess, how's the business side of it work, right? Because if you go on on his page in particular, it says $349 for personal use or $999 plus for business use, which makes sense that there would be a split there because you've obviously gotten a lot of earned uh, earned attention from those. Uh, how does it work actually on the, the payment side? In terms of like using Cameo? Yeah, using Cameo, maybe using Russ specifically. Well, Chris, not Russ, um, but uh, using him specifically, or you know what you've done, you've done with uh, other people on Cameo. Yeah, so he's kind of the only. We did a partnership with uh, Clearco, and I had like the game, the rapper uh, do a Cameo, just because I, yep. I kind of went on like a Cameo binge, like. I've been a fan of you forever. Your credit card's on file. You know, you're just like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'd love for you to just say MicroQuire. Like, this is awesome. Um, who else do we get? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, what's been interesting to see with Chris is uh, when I first booked him, he was $200. Now he's 5000 So okay, he has definitely you know, made some waves in the startup community. And so uh, it's it's cool to see him like, you know, making people laugh and helping startups get exposure and then raising his prices too, which is, I think, something that, you know, most startups should do. So he's done a very good job of that. It, it went from like 1K to 2K to 3K. Now it's at like 5K. So he's expensive. So that's like when we see something like that, right? Of the 999 plus in the buying process, then later does it tell you like, oh, here's like once you fill out the initial form, it'll tell you what what the price is or how's that work? So there's there's a personal use. So you can yeah. use his personal, I don't know his like personal cost, but let's say it's like 500 bucks and that would be for like a birthday wish or something like that, which can be a great way to motivate like your team. Like, hey, team, great, you know, Q1 or Q4 that's ending. Uh, here's our goals for next year. You know, Nathan wanted me to give you all a shout out. That'd be 500 bucks. But yep. then a business use where you post it externally. So on Twitter or social media or within some sort of mar piece of marketing content. Um, the price for that is usually 10x, um, you know, internal use. And then did any of the other ones that you tried? Did you feel like they got attention or, or that kind of thing? Make you want to do it again? Or was it more just the ones with Chris that really resonated? I think probably you'll see less cameos out of me. Okay. I think, you know, there, there, there gets to a point with, and we could talk, we could probably have another podcast about this, about like things with diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And I think I've kind of, you know, used them so many times that, I mean, for the really big like announcements that we have coming up, like maybe twice next year or something like that. But I think there's sort of a diminishing return, especially with the cost. You know, I think building in public kind of falls into that category a little bit. Audience exhaustion in terms of like paid ad campaigns. Um, right. You know, so I'm always thinking of that stuff, too. I like are we overdoing it? Um because then it just kind of starts to get corny when you're doing it over and over and over and over. And it's not really like, whoa, he's here. Like, I didn't expect this. And when it starts to become expected, I think it loses kind of a little bit of luster. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something else that you do a ton of is partnerships, whether it's with Pipe or AngelList or whoever. It feels like MicroQuire is coming out with a partnership every, I don't know what the actual cadence is. I feel like it's every two weeks to a month. 
what's the what's the strategy there and is that like a very deliberate marketing strategy or is it just like look this is a natural fit and so we're just going to do a better job it made sense to to do the partnership and we're just going to do a better job promoting it than most people do when when they come out with a partnership yeah i mean so the pipe clear co angelist partnerships all made total sense they help startups get acquired which is you know the purpose of our business and you know our our main metric of success is helping startups get acquired so helping them get financed increases the buyer pool which then can lead to more acquisitions so those those made a ton of sense and then we also want to expand internationally so we partnered with uh, essentially like the angel list of um, africa that serves 40 countries in africa and so i thought that was a, a really fun partnership in terms of you know helping really underserved areas of the world or support underserved areas of the world with microquire in terms of you know just our message and just our mm-hmm. encouragement and we're going to continue those so we're looking i'm actively speaking with um individuals that are you know accelerators or like startup boot camps in like turkey or europe or the uk or australia i have a number of um, conversations but we'll probably go a little lighter on those because i also feel like the partnership thing is it's like okay another partnership another partnership microfire really but that's um i think partnerships are uh what i would call a non-linear growth strategy so it's basically you know what you're doing is you're leveraging you know number one another company's brand so you're you're borrowing some of their brand equity saying like hey we're partnering so their capabilities are now part of our capabilities and vice versa um so there's benefits on both sides and then you know with products that you know pipe clear co and angelus offer specifically it adds value to our product so it's like a win 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 it's a it's a good marketing play good brand play uh, and then it's good just you know, product play without um, a lot of, you know, engineering needed. Is there like, do you have engineers internally just devoted to, you know, these integrations or, or do they tend to be more on the marketing, you know, or business ops side rather than on the product side? Cause they, they can be expensive on the product side. Yeah, they definitely can. I would say they're more on the marketing side then on like for example the angelist partnership is just a landing page that uh, so ablock uh the ceo of angelist is an investor in microquire and then naval is in an yep. investor in microquire and so i just asked i pointed at this other company that was making an spv product for private equity firms and i just said can you make me a landing page i'll promote it and so inside microquire there's like a drop down that says raise funds and then it takes you to a landing page so minimal product integration there but yeah. it's just kind of like us saying hey if you if you're looking to raise funds this is where we recommend you doing it right. we've done that with mercury bank as well which is just again you know you acquire a company you probably want to transfer those assets into a new entity that new entity is going to need a bank account so we're just kind of getting all the they're almost like perks if you will yeah that makes sense and then it's not this big integration that you're having to maintain for years to come or yeah no it's not like a like a facebook like a you know sso login or something like that um you know it's it's a lot simpler it's usually just like a link kicking over to a landing page um 
you know, driving traffic to them. And then we get some sort of kickback for whatever business we drive to them. Is there anything in particular that's worked well on like the partnerships that have been a, a, a huge boost, right? Where either you've gotten a bunch more attention for microquire or built the brand. Like, are there things you see in common on those ones where you're like, yes, that was a home run versus the ones where you're like, I, I think that was worth the time to put together. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I'd say all of them. I'd say my favorite are definitely the Clearco and Pipe partnerships. Mm-hmm. Like Carrie Hurst, the CEO of Pipe, he bought me this to kick off our partnership. It's a signed Mike Tyson glove. Nice. And we've done a number of acquisitions together. I think their company's fantastic. I love working with their team. Uh, Clearco, same thing. So Pipe helps finance all of our SaaS deals exclusively and then Clearco, all of our e-commerce deals exclusively. And they're just great teams and it's a clear need you know some people want to finance these with these companies and we make it extremely seamless to connect with those companies and we even do like pre-financing so if you're a founder looking to sell a microquire and you want to give a line of you know potential financing in advance to a buyer we can pre-approve a seller so it just makes kind of the you know when you're going to buy a home, it's like it's pre-financed or something like that. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but um, those are those are partnerships that really add, like they were on the product roadmap and they just, you know, we just went to the best ones in the market with the most credibility, with the largest capital pools, but also with the engineering resources. So, mm-hmm. you know, anytime a company is, you know, financed through Pipe, we get a notification within Slack that says like, hey, add pre-approval number to this company so we just we instead of working with like a ton of different financing partners we just pick the best ones and and then integrate it deeply with them that makes sense one other thing that i wanted to to ask about before we wrap up is on the uh, sort of the investor influencer side you have a lot of uh, people like you know you mentioned naval and and others who have invested in micro acquire and is that helping of like helping you, you know, amplify some of these things on Twitter, amplify these partnerships, open doors in some way. Um, do you think you get something similar with like a influencer program or ha- has the investor side really been a good, good angle for that? Yeah, that's a good question. So yes, there's definitely I, the group of investors that Microware has is like all my like idols, like, you know, founders of companies that, you know, yeah. I like, you know, Darmesh from HubSpot, Naval, like from Angelus, like those are some of my favorite companies and Mm -hmm. I get to interact with them on a, on a very limited basis. I don't reach out to them for advice, um, very often. So I think that also adds to just, you know, brand equity of just being a marketplace, you know, and us wanting to build this with the startup community. That was kind of more of the thought process behind it, but no, I mean you could even look at my likes. I, I has has Naval ever liked something of mine? No. Has Darmesh maybe once? Like, so no, I don't rely on them for like social media support or anything like that. But it it is a a good way in terms of you know when you raise from entrepreneurs, you get kind of again unique insights because most of them have been through M and A. So so typical VCs, but I I really like that uh style of of fundraising is when um obviously i'm a bigger advocate of bootstrapping because that's kind of 
you know, where I've spent uh, or had the most success. But if you're going to raise capital, I, I recommend entrepreneurs first because they have experience building a business. And then typically with, um, you know, acquisitions specifically in my case, which is, you know, extremely helpful. Yeah. You and I are both known for bootstrapping and we're also, I think, pretty well known for not being that dogmatic about it of being like, here's what we did. Here's why it works well. Here's why the other path can be fine too, <laughs> you know, rather than being super dogmatic in one camp or the other. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I'll probably like, like one thing I've noticed since like being vocal about bootstrapping um, that I think is a little like toxic is there's like such a if you're funded it's like i hate you and then if you're bootstrapped it's just like you know venture capital is just a tool and if you (laughs) know how to use the tool correctly it can be a great accelerant to your business like you and everything comes with a cost so when you bootstrap you know you have to kind of eat glass for much longer i've lived that life like you know but at the end, the rewards can be epic, you know? So if your goal, I always say if your goal is to make money, you should probably bootstrap because you can sell the business whenever you want. You have no approvals, right. you own the whole thing. Like Nathan, if you wanted to sell your business, that done. You don't, you don't have any investor approvals or saying, go, right. no, you need to hit that billion dollar mark. Um, but if you want to really disrupt the market or change a market or go a little bit bigger, faster, Venture capital is just a tool to accelerate that, but it all comes with a cost. So the cost of bootstrapping is sometimes you have to do customer support for longer. You have to, you know, do some of these roles where you can't bring in, you know, talent earlier. Mm-hmm. And then the cost of venture capital is, you know, you give up equity and then control within your business. There's usually controls of you need approval to raise capital. You need approval to, you know, sell your business. So everything comes with the cost and it's just pros and cons. But again, I think bootstrapping makes sense for 99% of entrepreneurs because, you know, the bar today is building a billion dollar business. And that's like, you know, like that's, that's not easy to do. And so for so many first time founders, I'm a big fan of stair stepping in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have one of my favorite tweets that I've, I've ever written just personally is, um, you know, start with an agency, get to cash flow positive, and then bootstrap an asset, whether that's the SaaS company or e-commerce business, sell that asset, become, you know, financially secure, and then do whatever you want. Swing for the fences, go lay on a beach, whatever. But along the way, you kind of prepare yourself yourself for the next stage of business. Yeah, kind of a kind of a rant there, but I hope that that's helpful. Yeah, I uh, I completely agree with that. I have an article titled "The Ladders of Wealth Creation" that uh, touches on a similar idea of moving using the skills from one ladder to move up to the next uh, and and go from there. Um, well, this has been fun. I, I always enjoy watching the partnerships, the, uh, what you're doing on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, I think that, uh, MicroAcquire is a great example of what you can build with an audience. So thanks for coming on and hanging out with me and, and we'll have to talk soon. Yeah. Nathan, thanks for having me, man. Enjoy the chat. All right. I'll catch you later. See you, man.